BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of. One that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Financial Heresy, where we talk about how money works so that you can make more, keep more, and give more. Um, Everybody right now is concerned about the second piece of that, keeping more. Because as people are finding out right now, the money that you have in the bank might not actually be there, which is crazy for most people um, that, uh, you know, are realizing that finding out how banks work right now um, or just being exposed to a little bit of how banks work. So today, that's what we're talking about. How do banks actually work and what causes them to fail? And more importantly, why the way that they work makes that failure almost inevitable. So today, in order to understand how banks work, we're going to take a little bit of a trip through time through about how banks uh, started off, uh, kind of the history of banking and how that evolution led to where we are today. Um, Some of the things that got embedded into the structure of our financial system, like fractional reserve banking and maturity mismatch that increased the risk um, exposed, you know, basically for the entire system. Um, how you have things like privatized profits, but socialized losses. And then we're going to take out our, uh, our crystal ball. We're going to look forward to the future, see where these signposts are pointing um, on where the banking system will go, not only in the US, uh, around the world as well, uh, because we've seen these things happen around the world throughout different cultures, different governments, different times throughout history. And uh, history tends to uh, rhyme. It, you can you can study history, see the patterns uh, that unfold, and then you can start to recognize, hey, if 
similar things start to happen now that we've seen happen before. Maybe we have an idea of how this might play out. So how banks really work and why they fail. First, let's start off with our caricature of a very small, isolated economy, our gold standard economy, desert island economy, where you have 10 people that get shipwrecked on an island. You've got each one has one gold coin. And so they uh, they've got to live there now. And so they start uh, they start working. They start, you know, gathering coconuts, catching fish, building huts, collecting, you know, finding spring water, you know, doing all the sorts of things to try and survive. And. And let's say over the course of the next year, um, they've created, you know, m- multiple huts for each person. Um, you know, they've created some games out of bamboo. They've created some water and food storage systems. And, uh, you know, they started smoking fish so that it would last longer. And so all these things that have increased their quality of life there on this island. Now, each one of them has different uh, needs. Everybody has different uh, uh, skills, abilities. And so the person who builds huts, you know, they get paid to build huts for people. And the person who is good at getting coconuts, they get paid to get coconuts for people and so on and so forth. You know, everybody kind of just landed with a job that they could, uh, you know, get paid enough to be able to buy the stuff that they need. And so they're all working together, but they're buying and selling from each other using these gold coins. What's important to recognize about this whole process so far is that, number one, the money supply has never changed. You don't have the ability to forge gold coins on this island, and so it's a perfectly fixed money supply. And so the gold, the, the, the money supply hasn't changed at all. But it's very evident, it's very clear that the quality of life has absolutely changed. Um, if you were to buy a coconut um, today on this island, you know, after a year, it costs you way less in terms of like labor. Like what do you have to do to get the amount of money that it would cost to get a coconut? Well, coconuts are extremely abundant now, so they're very cheap. So it's easy to get a coconut. However, when you first landed there, it was like they were scarce and they were hard to get and nobody had any. And so it was like, you know, a very expensive thing in terms of what you would have to produce in order to get your hands on a coconut. And so the price for coconuts has dropped. In fact, the price of anything has dropped. There's way more huts now than there were earlier. We have better tools. so We can make them easier than we could before. Fish as well. I mean, like everything has gotten cheaper because we have more of it. It meets our needs better. It's easier to get in terms of labor. So the cost of everything has gone down. In fact, that's the only way it can work if the money supply is fixed is that as the stuff increases, the abundance and the the accessibility to wants and needs increases, the price of all that goes down. And the price of it going down is just a reflection of what does it take for me to get the stuff that I want or need? Does it take more now or less now than it used to? And it clearly takes less of me to do something to get what I want than it did before when we first got to the island. And that is reflected in the price being cheaper. And so since the money supply can't change, then the price of the money or the value of the money relative to everything else is going to be pure signal. It's going to just reflect the actual value of those things, again, relative to uh, to each other. 
It's also important to recognize that uh, since the money supply doesn't change, it, it still doesn't change regardless of the transactions that happen. So when somebody saves, when somebody spends, when somebody borrows, when somebody invests, like it's just money changing hands from one person to another. The money supply cannot increase because nobody can forge gold coins. Um, there's no gold ore to dig out of the ground and mint into a coin. And, um, you know, unless somebody loses a coin, like buries it and forgets where they bury it or they throw it in the ocean or something like that, then the money supply doesn't decrease either. And so uh, the money supply is going to stay the same regardless of the financial transactions that take place. Now, it's true that historically this kind of a system is pretty rare. Most of the time what happens is people just say, okay, I'm going to take all my gold coins. I'm going to trust a third party to hold my gold for me. And they're going to give me a paper receipt that says I can go get that gold at any time. And then those paper receipts are the things that trade as money in the economy. So on this island, there's 10 pieces of gold coins. They give them to a banker and get 10 pieces of paper in return. And now those 10 pieces of paper are the ones that are uh, trading back and forth as money. It's important to recognize that nothing has changed yet in this financial system. It's still a limited supply. There's nothing different about spending money, saving money, borrowing money, anything like that. The only difference is that the banker now has the potential for fraud to forge money, like counterfeit money. Whereas before, when it was just gold that people were trading, it, was, it would have been very difficult in this situation to create a fake gold coin. And so now that money is the money that is being used is just paper, it is much easier to just create a new piece of paper that looks just like the other ones that everybody just accepts as being money. All right. So how does debt work then? Because this is where this is uh, kind of the, the where the foundation starts to get laid for a modern banking and financial system. In the old system, gold, before we put it with the bank, when Johnny borrows money from somebody, um, he uh, he's borrowing money that can no longer be spent by that person because you can't duplicate magically gold coin. So if I borrow money from Sally, uh, Sally can't spend that money. I can spend it now because I borrowed it from her, but she can't. So the money supply didn't change. It just went from her hands to my hands. And then when I pay her back, when I want to, uh, I have to earn extra income, spend less so I can save, so I can give it back to her. Even if I default and I can't pay her back, it's still 10 pieces of gold trading in the economy. That did not change. And so the money supply stays the same. But now that we all turned in our gold uh, to the banker, the bank has the ability print extra dollars, print extra paper um, that say they're redeemable for gold, even if they are not. Um, and so, uh, well, okay, I took, you know, took, I took a step forward one, uh, one step too fast. We have to talk about interest rates as well. So when Johnny borrows from Sally, um, there's an interest rate because it's debt, because Sally's like, hey, I could spend this money on something that I want right now. So if I'm going to forego my spending to lend this to you, I want to be compensated for that. So maybe I charge a 4% interest rate. And then Johnny says, nah, that's a little steep. And so he goes to somebody else and they give him a 3% interest rate. So when the savings pool is large and multiple people have savings, then the borrower can kind of 
have them compete against each other. There's multiple people with savings, and so he can go get the best rate. Um, and that's an example of the savings pool is large. So the interest rates go down and they stimulate borrowing, stimulate spending, stimulate risk taking because the savings pool is large. You can take risk, you can try and grow. And then what happens though if the situation you know continues like that until everybody has spent money and maybe one person has saved, but everybody else has spent. Now the situation is the opposite. Everybody needs money, needs to borrow money, and only one person has money to lend out. And so they'll say, hey, does anybody want to borrow from me at 10%? And half the people raise their hand. And he says, okay, what about 12%? And two people raise their hand. He says, okay, what about 15%? And one person still raises their hand. And so he says, okay, I'll lend to you then. Um, and so interest rates go up when the savings pool is low. It's, it's a natural mechanism uh, based on the auction, just the supply and demand of money. And versus everything else. And then it uh, incentivizes all the economic actors to save because there's no money to spend. If you try and borrow, you're going to get crushed from the interest rate. So might as well save so you can make money on lending. And uh, that regrows the savings. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. 
as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Cool. And so there are these built-in mechanisms to sound money, to a limited supply of money that will stimulate spending when people are saving too much. And then it'll stimulate saving when people are spending too much through the natural interest rate that will ebb and flow as kind of an equalizer effect on, uh, on, on money and spending and saving and debt. Now we move to the system where everybody gave their money, their gold to the banker and got paper receipts instead. The banker looks out of this and he realizes, hey, I can just create as many of these pieces of paper as I want. There's no cost to me doing that. I just take a piece of paper and write down on it. Hey, you can come get gold from me at any time. So he says, I want to start a lending service. So everybody lends. So everybody doesn't think twice about the banker lending. They just don't realize that he's not lending his own money. Um, and so he looks out and he says, okay, if this guy wants to go borrow from somewhere in the economy right now, most people are offering, you know, 3%, 4%. So if I want to attract business, then I need to offer a little bit less, let's say 2%. And if I offer 2% loans, everybody I will get all the business. Everybody will come borrow from me. And he's okay with that because he's not taking on any cost to lend. It's not like he's lending out his own money. There's no opportunity cost there. There's no real cost. It's just him taking a piece of paper and writing on it. Hey, you can come get gold from me at any time. And he hands it out to somebody. And so he offers these loans at 2%. And just like he thought, everybody comes to borrow from him. Now, this does a couple of things. Number one, New money has just been created out of thin air. Instead of 10 pieces of gold trading before or 10 pieces of paper for the 10 pieces of gold trading as money before, now there's 11, 12, 13 pieces of paper trading as money. So it increases the money supply. When the money supply increases, usually it increases quick like that. Um, that's faster than the pace at which you can create new stuff because the money comes into existence immediately, but it takes time to create new stuff, new wealth, new goods, new services, new products. And so it will have an effect of pushing up prices because the first person who gets their money, that new money, will be able to go spend it at the current level of prices. But that's income or that's a that's purchasing power that he wouldn't have had otherwise because he only took on that debt because the interest rate was lower. He thought the savings pool was abundant. Before, he would have had to borrow at 4% and he would have said no because he would have said the savings pool is not abundant enough. That's too high of a cost for me. I don't want to do that. But at 2%, it stimulated, it incentivized him to get that debt and to spend that because the signal being sent out to the economy was, hey, there's lots of money. So go take risks and go spend. It's time of growth. 
even though the reality was the opposite. So he goes and spends. And then as that new money, well, that's a, that's income for whoever he bought that thing from. Let's say he bought a roof or new shoes. That's income for the shoemaker that that shoemaker would not have had. So maybe the shoemaker was not being reckless and the shoemaker didn't go and get new debt, but the shoemaker still got an increase in income as a result. So the shoemaker thinks I'm doing all the right things here. I'm being responsible, but my, and my income has gone up. Therefore things are good. I'm doing the right things. I'm being productive and I can go spend some extra money. He, he wasn't taking on any risks himself. He wasn't doing anything crazy, but he was just looking at his own business and thinking I'm working hard and now I'm making more money. That means I'm better at this. And that means now I can go spend this money on something that I want to spend this money on. And so he goes out and does the same thing. So all throughout the system, now incomes start going up as a result of the new money that went into the system. But remember, this was all based on debt. And so at some point, this uh, trend where prices go up as the incomes start going up from the new money that enters circulation, it has to inevitably it reverses itself because the debt starts to get paid off at some point. That first person who took out the debt, maybe it's a year term. And so in a year, they pay out, they take some of the income that they've earned and they pay off that debt. Well, now when they pay off that debt, money has left circulation because let's say the money supply went from 10 to 11. Now, when he earns that extra dollar to pay back his debt and then he pays it back, the money supply went from 11 down to 10. And so the money supply shrinks then. And now the next person in line that was going to have some income now doesn't have that income. So they have to decrease their expenses as well. So the whole trip up gets unwound as the debt gets paid off. Now, you might also have defaults. You might have people realize, hey, there's not there's more paper in circulation than we know the, the bank has in gold. So you might have everybody do a bank run and run up to the bank and say, give me my gold. And then he re, everybody realizes there's only 10 pieces in there. So some people get stuck with nothing. Some people get their gold back. Um, but essentially what you have here is a system where money gets lent into existence, prices go up, that's the boom. And then something triggers the bust to start, but it always does start from one trigger or another. And then everything unwinds, the deleveraging occurs and uh, the, the crash happens, the bust. Um, and, uh, and so that's the boom bust cycle that happens as a result of the money supply increasing and then shrinking due to the manipulation of credit of, uh, of interest rates. So that has that that pattern has taken place literally countless times throughout history. Um, but instead of outlawing it, what happened a couple hundred years ago is that countries started to nationalize it. So they said, OK, banks can still do this, but you have to be like licensed and you have to do it underneath the central bank. And then if there's a run on the bank, the central bank will be there. So if everybody comes to get the gold you and you don't have enough, you just turn to the central bank and say, hey, central bank, give me some gold. And the central bank will be able to do that for you. Um, and so obviously this didn't solve the problem because then you get a, nas a national, like a nationwide bank run. Yes, you have a longer boom, but then you have a bigger bust. And so that's when we get things like the first the forgotten Great Depression in 1920 and then the Great Depression in 1929 and uh, Weimar uh, Germany, the Weimar Republic in Germany collapsing through hyperinflation. So you see um, through trying to scale the system up and fix it through scaling it and making it bigger, you just make the problem uh, worse 
because it can build up for so much longer. Um, now, the other thing about this, so we've talked about how that fractional reserve, that's called fractional reserve banking. And that's where uh, you have, you know, 10 pieces of gold in the vault, but you've issued 15 pieces of paper that I'll say you can come get gold at any time. Eventually, the deleveraging occurs where people pay off the debt or there's a bank run where people go to get their uh, their gold and it's not there. Um, and that's a result of fractional reserve banking. Now, the next thing that uh, causes a problem here, because you could technically do fractional reserve banking without maturity mismatch. So maturity mismatch is where you give a p- somebody a piece of paper that says you can come get your gold at any time. However, the uh, the way that you have produced that piece of paper is maybe as a one year loan. So you gave a loan to somebody for you know a year, but everything that you have in deposit could be collected on at any time. This is maturity mismatch, and so this is how banks operate today. Um, this is where you put your dollar in the bank. And they say, this is a checking account. This is a savings account. So you are allowed to come get your dollar at any time. But what they do is they turn around and they loan that dollar out to somebody in an auto loan or a credit card loan or a mortgage. And if you try and go get your dollar back, they have to give you some of their small reserves. They've held a little bit from everybody. But if everybody tries to go get their dollars, well, they're all loaned out. And it's not like the bank can just turn around and tell everybody that they loaned the, the, the money out to to give it back. It's like, no, that's a 30-year mortgage. They're not going to be able to give you $700,000 today. That you, They use that to buy a house. They don't have it. So the bank can't just go collect on those loans because those loans don't mature until a year or 10 years or 30 years. But the deposits that are um, that are redeemable on demand – um, are, uh, are mismatched. This is called maturity mismatch uh, or maturity transformation. They take something that is on demand and they transform it into something that is, you know, five years, 10 years, 30 years down the road. And so this mix of fractional reserve banking and maturity uh, transformation is a really deadly concoction because it produces so much instability that it makes Bank runs basically inevitable, makes bank failure basically inevitable at some point. So this is exactly what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, by the way. It's not like they were engaging in any risky trades. They were doing the exact same thing that all banks do. They were investing. They were loaning money to the U.S. government. They were buying treasuries. Those are supposed to be the safest assets in the world. Um, But when you take deposits and you say you can come get your money at any time, And then you loan it out and you buy something that won't mature for a year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Well, eventually you're going to run into a problem if people come and try and get their money because you don't have it. So this one thing, one solution would be to uh, eliminate maturity mismatch, meaning on demand deposits can't be used to go. Uh, to, to go into a one-year or a three-year or a five-year type of loan. Um, on-demand deposits can only go into assets that um, are able to be liquidated uh, at, uh, at market value at any time. The problem is if it's an asset and it has some sort of market value, that market value will fluctuate, which means that 
uh, you run into the exact same problem. It's like, would you want them to buy stocks with your money? If you put a dollar in the bank, would you want them to turn around and buy Apple shares? No, because if they put $1 into Apple and then Apple goes down and you try to go get your dollar and they sell Apple for 90 cents and they can only give you 90 cents, you would not be very happy about that. You wanted your dollar. Um, And so there are certain ways you can kind of with our current banking system, it, it just seems like it's probably not possible to solve this problem. Um, now, you might think, okay, well, what about things like CDs? Absolutely. Certificate of that's that's not maturity transformation. If you give the bank your money for a year and then they know, hey, I have to give this back in a year, um, they can do whatever they want with it during that year as long as they know whatever they do with it, they'll be able to produce what they promised at the end of that year. Um, and so there's no maturity transformation there because there's no... Um, there's no uh, mismatch with the timing. Um, and so uh, there's no risk of you coming uh, before uh, they were expecting to get your money back. You're, it was a one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. On your term. So that that can solve part of it, but the problem is most money in the system needs to be liquid because people are constantly spending it. Most dollars are in bank accounts where people get them and then spend them within two weeks to four weeks. Um, there is not, in terms of like the average bank account, the turnover of dollars within the average month is almost 100%. Yes, you do have a lot of money that sits there for a long time and doesn't move. Um, but that is concentrated in the hands of very few people when you, and, and so if you're looking at the mean, then you might be, you might have a distorted view and you might think, oh, there's a lot of money that you would be able to engage in non-maturity transformation transactions with, but it's not true. It's in a few bank accounts with the few richest people. When you look at the average person, like the median bank account, uh, most dollars that flow through bank accounts, the turnover in, in the average bank account is almost 100% within the course of two to four weeks. Um, most Americans, if they got an unexpected expense, um, would not be able to pay it uh, within you know two to four weeks, unfortunately. Um, no savings, debt, things like that. So you get this situation then where you have banks who historically you were supposed to be able to have this business where you, you say, okay, well, everybody understands how it works. Now you give me your money. I will pay you in order for you to give me that money. So you're giving me a deposit and I'm going to pay you 1%, 2%, whatever it is. Um, and you understand that I'm only able to pay you for this money because I'm turning around and I'm doing something with it. So you understand that there is risk because I'm loaning it out or I'm buying an asset or I'm doing something with this to make a little bit more money than what I'm making you. I'm going to pay you 2%, but I'm going to make 3%. So I'm going to keep the 1% difference. So me as a bank, that's how I'm able to operate as a business. I'm making money on your money and you understand that there is a risk. And so um, if, if I want to stay in business, number one, I have to engage in profitable trades. Number two, I have to engage in uh, conservative trades where I'm not risking losing a lot of money. Um, and then number three, I have to be transparent with that uh, about that with you so that you understand what's happening. Because if you understand what I'm doing with your money, how I'm paying you, on your money and the conservative nature and the high degree of certainty of the profits, the small profits on the money, then you are going to be a lot more likely to just allow me to continue doing what I'm doing with your money. You're not going to be concerned about, hey, uh, you know, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they don't have it. So I'm going to go get it and then uh, cause a bank run to happen where everybody tries to go get their money at the same time. So 
me as a business, I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to be conservative. I'm going to be, you know, uh, careful about not, not taking on excess risk. I'm going to be looking for small profits. I'm going to share that with you. And then if for some reason I do something wrong, um, well then what happens? I lose money. I can't pay you what I said I was going to pay you. You go to get your money and I shut down. Bank run happens. That's bad for me. That's really bad for you. Nobody will do business with me anymore. That's just the reality of what this would do um, if if I run a bank like this. Nobody's going to let me, nobody's going to trust me to hold their money anymore. And so back before central banking, yes, you had bank failures happen, but there was skin in the game. And so they didn't actually happen that often. And um, when they did happen, number one, people learned their lesson to be more careful with who they let uh, entrusted their money to. And so it made the system stronger because only the most conservative, most careful, best at getting profits type of people would be trusted to be bankers because that's the only people people would trust for their money once they got burned. And then number two, all the bad actors eventually get weeded out of the system because they fail. Um, and so you had privatized profits, but you also had privatized losses. Only the people with skin in the game were the ones who won and the people with skin in the game were the ones who could lose. When you scale it up to the system we have today, however, um, banks still operate with the privatized profit model. They use your money to go take risks and they make money. And as long as they're being conservative, then they'll keep on chugging along. But if they accidentally take too many risks or they do something wrong or something happens, even if it's outside of their control, well, then the system is so scaled up now that when depositors like tech companies are at risk, the government steps in and they socialize the losses. And so we've heard a lot about the government saying it's not the taxpayers that are on the hook. It's the other banks that are on the hook that will pay higher fees for this bailout. Well, where are those fees going to come from? They're going to come from your checking account, your savings account. Your fees are going to go up or the rate that they're paying you on your money will go down. So these are taxpayers. It's not going to come directly through taxes. No, but it's the American citizen that has a bank account, which everybody does. And that American citizen is a taxpayer. So the taxpayers are on the hook that way. Now, let's say it uh, that bailout happens through an increase in the money supply by the Federal Reserve, which so far, at least through a loan, that is where it's coming from right now, bridge loans from the, from the Fed to fund the FDIC. If that's how it stays, then the American people as a whole, lose out on the deflation that would have happened otherwise. You don't stimulate new inflation because you're not actually creating new money. You're just stopping that old money from being destroyed. And so Americans pay for it through the prices staying higher instead of being able to enjoy the lower prices that would have happened as a result. And so because the system is so scaled up, People are happy to let the banks run away with the profits until the losses pile up and until the risk takes place. And then the government comes in and socializes the losses, makes the entire economy bear the burden of the loss, bails out the banks, and then uh, so that people can keep their uh, keep their deposits, so that the people uh, who had those deposits, the companies, the individuals, whoever it is, so that they don't suffer. 
But then you have public outrage, which is quite honestly very understandable, right? Because these banks were making money hand over fist, but taking on risk that they shouldn't have. They were engaging in fractional reserve banking, which I call fraudulent reserve banking, maturity mismatch. And these things are guaranteed to make a bank fail if people try and go get their money. It's just guaranteed to happen. And so if we have a system that allows private profits of banks, we must allow them to fail. If we allow them to fail, they will be more conservative because they'll have to bear the brunt of their own failure. And the individuals who lose their deposits then will be much more careful about where they go next time. And the system will become stronger overall because only the best will attract deposits and the worst will get weeded out of the game. So if you allow private profits, you have to allow private losses. It's the only way to have a functioning system. However, if you are going to socialize the losses, the society will implode if you continue to allow the privatized profits. Now, it doesn't happen immediately, but eventually individual citizens, societies get tired of this. They look around and people realize I don't, they'll say, I don't understand the intricacies of the system, which might be very true because the system can be complicated, but that does not mean that they don't see that they are bearing the burden and paying for the mistakes of the rich paying for the mistakes of the banks. So the banks got to keep all those profits for all those years, and now the people are paying the price. And eventually, that comes to an end. And so you either allow the privatized profits and the privatized losses, or if you socialize the losses, you socialize the profits. You eliminate the ability for those banks to to, to be private, profitable uh, businesses. So now that's where I'm looking forward, looking ahead, and that's where it looks like this is going. Um, when you see the Federal Reserve step in, you see the Treasury step in, you see the FDIC step in and the White House step in and say, okay, we're going to guarantee all the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank, even though 90% of them were above the threshold of being guaranteed. Because they didn't want these tech companies to, to lose all their money and then all those jobs and, and all these billionaires who were donors to all these political parties, they didn't want the fallout from that. So they said, okay, we're going to just step it up and we're going to completely socialize this and say, okay, nobody loses their money here other than the investors in the bank. Um, you, you, have, you have the same exact situation then start to spread to other banks and you have people say, okay, well, I'm going to take my money out of this bank though, because I don't have any tech billionaires at my bank. And so if my bank fails, they're not going to bail that bank out. So I'm just going to put it with the big bank. And then you, you have that bank run, uh, start to have a domino effect, work its way throughout the economy where people start moving all their money to the banks that they perceive as too big to be allowed to fail. And I say too big to be allowed to fail because too big to fail. People think that means that the bank is so big that the bank can't fail. No, it means too big to be allowed to fail. So the government will bail them out. And so you have this uh, um, effect where all of the small banks, regardless of what they were doing with the money, start to fail anyway. So then you have like 
Yellen the other day came out and said, all right, we're going to have to look for a way to guarantee all deposits at all banks. Well, the only reason you'd have to guarantee all deposits at all banks is if those deposits are not actually there. And a very easy fix for this whole thing would be to separate deposit banking from the financial system here and centralize it. Um, you could still have it with, uh, you know, have it be a distributed ledger system like it is today with multiple banks, but uh, deposit only where the bank doesn't need to offset it with an asset to loan it out. You separate it from the system so that it's not appearing on balance sheets as a profit or a loss for these institutions. And you have the funding to run the infrastructure paid for via printing money, basically just operating the plumbing of the deposit banking system. This is basically the the phase two of a central bank digital currency. It's not full-fledged, but it's phase two. It's not even phase one. Phase one is the infrastructure that the Fed is rolling out in July for instant payments. Um, But phase two is going to be to separate deposit banking from the system. And so you won't have a system, and I believe this could very easily happen within the next year um, after phase one goes through some trial testing um, by the end of this year, this could happen. I'm not saying it will. I'm saying it could um, where you have deposit banking just completely separated from the system so that when you put your money in a bank account, you are not loaning your dollar to an institution that has to turn around and go try and make money with it and try and not lose it and try and be profitable with it. Instead, you are just adding your that number to a ledger and that number is just there. It's not a loan. It's not debt. It's not moving around. It's not going anywhere. It's not being used for anything. It is just a number that is there. And so that dollar sits there until you spend it and it goes onto somebody else's ledger, onto somebody else's, uh, into somebody else's account. And again, it just sits there. And this would be separated from money market funds. This would be separated from investing. This would be separated from all the typical banking practices so that regular checking accounts and savings accounts are not going to have the problem of fractional reserve banking anymore, of maturity mismatch, of making banks be at risk of bank runs. Now, that means a couple of things. Number one, it means that banks won't be able to make money that way anymore. So either banks will have to make money doing things like um, you know, their, their investment banking. It'll make, they'll have to make money doing, uh, you know, w- with like loans, but it, uh, it also means that some of the institutions might just get absorbed by the federal reserve as, Hey, we're just going to have you be infrastructure for running deposit banking. Um, and, uh, and, and it would become like a pub banking. This is also like a quasi nationalization of banking, which again has happened many times throughout history. And, uh, they just operate, uh, the plumbing of the system. They are the infrastructure then instead of private businesses, um, they're like public utilities. And, um, uh, and, and so I think there's a very real possibility that we get this ledger based system instead of a debt based system where when 
you give the money, the dollar to the bank right now, that's technically a loan. They owe you that dollar back. Um, and so we have a debt based banking system. It's very possible that even within the next year, we transition away from that. And at least for deposits, we transition over to just straight ledger based where that money is not getting used for something else. It's just on the ledger. It's just there. It's just, and you can do whatever you want with it. You could loan it out. You could invest it. You could spend, you could do something else with it, but checking accounts and savings accounts would be separated from the institutional, uh, the institution of banking as we've known it for decades and centuries. Um, to the point where it is it is separate and whether that's paid for through complete nationalization and uh, taxpayer money, whether it's paid for through printing of money by uh, kind of absorbing it into the Fed, whether that's paid for by changing the laws about what banks can and have to do with that sort of money. I don't know the details, but it's very likely that the way that it looks is separate so that there's no more rehypothecation of dollars, that there's no more fractional reserve banking associated with deposits and maturity mismatch. So we'll see. I hope that explanation all helps, helps you understand what is going on right now and makes clear why I am so certain that at some point a full-blown central bank digital currency will be uh, will be tried uh, here in this country because there are so many things pointing that direction. And I think it's the biggest risk that our country faces, but unfortunately it looks like we are barreling forward towards that end. So we'll see. I'll keep you updated. Thank you so much for hanging in there through another episode. Really appreciate you. See you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. 
Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Head in store and shop for all your favorite personal care essentials to earn four times rewards points. Shop for products from Olay, Always, Gillette, Vicks, and Crest. Plus, check out new items like Mr. Clean Magic Eraser Ultra Thick Multi-Surface Cleaner. No more sponges or other cleaning products needed. And Head & Shoulders Bare Soothing Hydration Shampoo, a new kind of anti-dandruff shampoo with only nine ingredients. Offer expires March 26. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more more details.